Thanks for listening to the Thyroid Fixer podcast with your host, me, Dr. Amy Horniman, aka The Thyroid Fixer, functional medicine practitioner, hormone and weight loss expert. We're talking all things thyroid, hormone and health related in order to empower, educate and transform you. So if you're ready to get your life back, let's get started. So these are my absolute favorite episodes to do as many amazing guests as I have on on the regular. Your questions fuel me. This is what I absolutely love. And that's really why I host in the different Facebook groups, Attune Thyroid, my own group, Girl Fix Your Thyroid, because I want to hear from you. I want your questions and I want to be able to answer them live. So that's what we're going to do today. A full hour of nothing but your questions and they're going to be answered live. You're going to get real answers. So we're just going to dive in and I'm just going to start somewhere and we're going to do this together. Are you finally at your wits end where you are tired of dealing with doctor after doctor? Maybe you've spent thousands on integrative or functional practitioners that have not helped you at all because they don't know the thyroid and hormones. They're not even testing properly. So come work with myself and my team. We prescribe to all 50 states and parts of Canada. I have you covered. I've been building this team for years so that I could help you no matter where you are. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, book a free application call. We're going to go over your current health situation, what worked, what hasn't worked, all the things. And then we will pair you up with the right program for you where we will do it all. You will come out the other side of the program, totally optimized, getting your life back. You're going to recognize the person you see in the mirror again. Doesn't that sound absolutely amazing? Well, it might sound like you don't even believe it, but I promise you, I promise you, we will take good care of you. So click the link in the show notes, book a call today, and we'll be talking to you soon. Okay. The first question comes from Miss Caitlin. She has a wild question. She says, I was diagnosed with Hashi two years ago. I've had three children, many miscarriages in between, which I am sorry about. That's so, so common and is such a big sign and symptom that conventional medicine often overlooks. When a woman does have multiple miscarriages, yes, there's a part that is normal, but there's also a part that we really have to say, hey, maybe we need to look deeper into a thyroid problem. So many miscarriages in between, gained and lost 70 pounds with, with each of those three children. It wasn't until my last pregnancy that I got my Hashimoto's diagnosis and so many things fell into place and suddenly made sense. I have a wonderful functional doctor and feel healthy and happy. The question is, Gaining and losing that amount of weight three times wreaked havoc on my body, which it does. My weight is where I want it, but I'm very interested in having a breast augmentation or a tummy tuck to help with a loose skin. Oh, this is a wild question to kick off, Caitlin. Thank you. However, I read some scary things about implants and autoimmune diseases. Is there any truth to those theories? Is plastic surgery okay for people with hypo? Okay. So, Ms. Caitlin, good for you for getting your health back on track for finding a functional doc that knows the thyroid, because that is important. I have multiple podcasts on that. 
with me bitching about these functional and integrative doctors claiming to help you. And then they don't have a clue what to do with thyroid and hormones. So very, very important when it comes to breast implants, well, plastic surgery in general, surgery is surgery. And I am a huge proponent of doing things that make you happy and that make you more confident. I don't care if it's a filler, if it's hair extensions, if it's a surgery, I am a huge proponent in doing what you really want to do so that you can have that level of confidence inside of you. And if something is bothering you, it doesn't matter what the world says in terms of you look fine. Don't worry about that. You're just being vain. No, to those people, I give them the bird and I say, you live your life. I'm going to live mine or she's going to live hers because this is a very, very personal decision. Breast implants. I brought on to my show, to the Thyroid Fixer podcast, Dr. Robert Whitfield. And you can go back. He's talked about the no-cut facelift. And then we have another episode on breast implant illness. The reason I brought him on is because he really comes with, I mean, he's one of the top explant doctors out there, but he has a very realistic point of view. So I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. I didn't want someone on just saying, breast implants are bad. If you have autoimmune disease, go get your boobs ripped out because I have had a multitude of patients that have had this surgery done because out of desperation, and you all know that when you are feeling so low and so down and so horrible, you know that you will pretty much do anything and you will grab onto any and every answer there could possibly be in hopes that this is gonna be the one to change your health and to change your life. And I have had patients who have gotten the breast explant surgery done, the taking the implants out, and it didn't help at all. So they are left 20,000 plus in debt. And now they are dealing with a different look than that what they were used to, and they're still not feeling any better. So I really, I personally do not, hold on to the breast implant illness diagnosis or theory for everyone. I think, and Dr. Robert puts this perfectly in the podcast, that there are some individuals who are just in general, they're going to be a little bit more sensitive. They're going to react to pretty much anything. I mean, you could put, you could break your wrists. I, I broke my wrist snowboarding years ago and there's metal in here now. To someone else, this might be detrimental to their health. They might react and have all kinds of inflammation going through their body. But for me personally, not a big deal. So I think that there are individuals who are definitely more sensitive to breast implants or to anything that's being put into the body that is foreign, we'll say, or of a different substance than natural tissue. But it really has to kind of be... It has to be your decision. Um, Caitlin, I would not be scared to do something for yourself. And okay, if you start to react, God forbid, and it is very, very rare. I mean, really, honestly, if you look at the amount of breast implants that are done, it's one of the most popular plastic surgeries. So if you look at the amount that are done every year and you look at the amount of 
women that have a, a bad reaction, it's a very, very, very small percent. Although in the Facebook groups and in the news, we're getting a lot of exposure with the BII. I just don't think it's as prevalent as you need to be concerned about. But at the end of the day, it is your decision. That is absolutely my two cents. I definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast with Dr. Robert Whitfield on breast implant illness. All right, we're going to keep going here. Miss Stacy, is there a ratio to determine estrogen dominance? My estrogen has come down to normal range, but I'm still on the low side with progesterone and testosterone. So estrogens come down normal, lower progesterone and testosterone. I have Hashimoto's and Graves. And after every weight-bearing workout, I do suffer with muscle soreness and fatigue for two to three days, which is something I hear quite often. So you might be listening to this and nodding your head going, oh my gosh, that's me as well. This is a very, very common symptom to hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's is that really delayed recovery. And I also see it tied into low testosterone. I've heard that sometimes happens with Hashimoto's. Is this a myth or do you see that also? Okay. I just answered you, Stace. Yes, I do see that quite often. And do you have any suggestions that would help with the muscle recovery? So number one, obviously we're working at getting thyroid optimized and testosterone levels up. The other part of that component, I would definitely recommend creatine because that is, that's tried and true. And I've had a couple of people ask me to do a creatine episode. I don't think that we could do an entire episode with creatine or on creatine and the benefits of, but maybe, maybe down the road. But what we have to remember is creatine is like the OG of supplements in the bodybuilding world. I remember back in the nineties when I was doing the EAS Body for Life. And if any of you remember that, oh my God, kudos, kudos for remembering that whole time. But EAS and Body for Life with Bill Phillips, they had you know this transformation, body transformation contest where you took before and after pictures and you used all of their stuff. Maybe I'll do that with the fixture line one of these days. But creatine was in that mix. And I remember my sister, who's a doctor, she was looking up all these studies on, is creatine good? Is it bad? Because it had some like a bad aura, bad stigma back then. There was nothing that could be found in the literature. And even, I mean, fast forward 20 some years. Yeah. 20, almost 30 years since I was using creatine, there's never been a negative report about the use of creatine. It has muscle recovery benefits. It has memory and cognition benefits to it, anti-aging benefits, and it pushes nutrients and water into the muscle cell. Now, like I said, I should do an entire episode or at least a mini episode on the benefits of creatine and the mechanism of action of how it works. But just suffice it to say, in terms of strength and muscle recovery, you can absolutely add this into the mix. The other thing that I would consider is adding in amino acids because we know that protein, the building blocks of protein, amino acids, and the building blocks of muscle tissue require amino acids. Same with your hair and hair quality. So when you're taking amino acids and even drinking them during a workout, you're going to improve muscle recovery. And you're also going to get a little bit, of, not a lot of strength. It's not like you're going to go from lifting, you know, doing a 10 pound shoulder press to doing you know 30 pound shoulder press, 
but you're going to notice better improvement of your muscles as well. So those are two that I would definitely add in, Stacey. And then I interviewed Emily with the Thyroid Strong program, Emily Keybird. And I want you to possibly listen to that episode and maybe try out her program because one of my patients did her Thyroid Strong workout program and she who was she was also reporting that that muscle soreness that muscle fatigue that slow recovery after workouts she was reporting that as well and she said she did not experience that doing Emily's thyroid strong program so that might be another option for you to improve your muscle endurance endurance and capacity okay let's keep this rolling Miss Carrie, Miss Carrie has a long one. Okay, since you are asking, <laughs> this is information I haven't found. What are good, better, best, optimal target numbers for CGMs, continuous glucose monitors? If I think I'm controlling all the lifestyle factors, what numbers would warrant a request for something like metformin to reach a blood sugar optimization? My daily average on the Freestyle Libre 2 went from 102 to 93 to 95 after a couple of weeks of one T2 thyroid fixer and two blood sugar fixer per day. Even better, I stopped getting the reactive lows. I read somewhere not to let your meals make you go over 120, but a protein-forward meal with a gorgeous leafy salad and a small portion of a starchy vegetable or some berries swings me over 150. I haven't even attempted a simple carb like a gluten-free bun or actual sweet treat with real sugar in it. I set the app to alert me if I get to 140. So I know to take a walk around the block or if at all feasible. Is that good or should it be higher or lower? Okay, so Carrie, first of all, with CGMs, there is such a margin of error with them. So you really want to, you are correct in that ultimately... We don't really want you going much over 120, although realistically, let's say you do spike to 140 and then you come back down. So it really is about that, that postprandial, that post-meal reaction of where you slingshot back to. So while we don't want to see you have major, major highs and lows, like I don't want to see you go to 180 after a meal and then drop down to 75 or 80, that's just slingshotting. And that is reactive hypoglycemia, kind of like you're talking about, about you're not experiencing the reactive lows that you once did. So that's fantastic because you are stabilizing more. And that's one thing that I love about berberine is that it takes that, that big curve, that big high and the big lows, and it squishes them together. So you get a much more even steady wave-like pattern where you're not getting the big spikes and the big drops. So that's the beauty of blood sugar fixer for sure. But to answer your question, I'm not going to get overly concerned about a really nice starchy veggie meal or a meal with berries or some fruit in it, spiking you to 140, 150. As long as you come back down and two hours post-meal, you're more balanced out now around that 85 to 95 zone. So if you can spring back into that beautiful niche little zone, I'm good with that. I am totally good with that. 
where you really want to use a CGM and where all of you can use a CGM is in getting data feedback so that when you eat something like my experience, which I shared before in eating a keto cereal, so keto cereal with monk fruit, and it's pretty darn sweet. Even to the taste buds, it's very, very sweet with that much monk fruit in it. I shot very, very high and I had a spike. Same thing happened after an almond milk latte. It was probably sweetened almond milk with, and I did, I know I preach against using artificial sweeteners, but I did a shot of sugar-free vanilla in it. And my CGM read like 180-200 is where I hit. So when you're getting those, those pinpointed whack-a-doodle really high spikes after you eat something, that is telling you and it's giving you feedback that that particular food should be avoided because that particular food is really shooting you pretty high with your glucose. This can even happen with good for you foods. So this is where that CGM is really beneficial because you could be eating very, very clean. You could even be eating low carb or keto. And just like I shared, those low carbohydrate, even on a label of a food, right? So you're still seeing those carbohydrates marked as low. Maybe that food in particular reacts with you a little bit differently. So I'll use the example, which this is very, very rare, but I'm going to use this as a crazy example. Let's say you have a beautiful meal of chicken breast. I'm I'm going bodybuilder, old school here. Chicken breast, a half of a sweet potato, no sugar on it, just a half a sweet potato and a side of broccoli. And you eat that and you jack your blood sugar up to 200. What the hell's that all about? So let's do some experimentation. The next day, let's just do the chicken breast and the sweet potato and let's see what happens. Okay, if you spike really high, chances are it's not the protein. It's going to be that sweet potato that is spiking your glucose. Now, if that doesn't happen, try the chicken and the broccoli. You think there's no way, there's no way that broccoli would shoot my blood sugar up. But what if it's just not right for your body? What if you are sensitive to whatever is in the broccoli? What if that particular food that you just ate almost spurs on not an allergic reaction, but a, a sensitivity, a food sensitivity that is going to reflect in your glucose. And quite frankly, I think testing your glucose is way, way, way more accurate than a food sensitivity panel, because that's going to give you those specific foods that you as an individual react to, whereas a food sensitivity panel is just going to be picking up on the food that you just ate. So that's where I like to use the CGM. So Carrie, I hope that that answers a lot of your questions on the CGM. But yeah, basically, don't worry about that 150. Really look for those super high spikes. And let's make sure that you're coming down back into that 85 to 95 zone post meal. Okay, Geraldine has a question piggybacking off of Carrie's question. I'd like to know how to best use my keto mojo, when to test, how often, what my target should be, et cetera. 
I just use it to spot test occasionally to see if I'm in ketosis. Also, I'd like to know more about CGMs. What makes someone a candidate for using one? So let's go with the Keto Mojo. The Keto Mojo is a finger prick as opposed to a CGM that lives on your arm. You take your phone, you scan it, you get a reading and it's always reading as well onto an app on your phone. The Keto Mojo is that moment in time. So it's a finger prick test. And the Mojo comes with glucose strips so you can test your glucose. And it also comes with ketone strips. Now, the glucose strips are the same as the CGM. Now, they do measure a little bit differently. And I can get into that on a whole different podcast, not go down that rabbit hole right now. But the the Keto Mojo, when you're measuring the the glucose, we still want it, you know, again, postprandial, two hours, post-meal. I would love to see it come back down 85 to 90, 95. And even lower if you can tolerate it. Some people drop to 70 or 75. I do in a fasted state, but it doesn't affect me. I don't feel like it's low. Whereas some people, if they drop to 70 or 75, they will feel like it's like it's a very low reading. Like they're in this low blood sugar mode. With the ketone strips, you want to be with the keto mojo, you want to be 0.5 or above shows you in ketosis. Now, here's the thing of when to test. If you test your ketones first thing in the morning, or even your glucose first thing in the morning, we have a cortisol awakening response. So cortisol goes up in the morning and that is going to push up your glucose in the morning. So I personally get very high glucose readings in the morning, which is why I don't test my glucose in the morning. I don't test my ketones in the morning. It's pointless. You want to test them later in the day in that fasted state. So maybe after lunch is a really good time to test because now you're going to get a more accurate reading of that fasted state of glucose, maybe it's two hours post-meal, and then you're in that fasted state where ketones have a chance to come up. So if your glucose is high, your ketones will be low, and chances are if your glucose is lower, your ketones have a chance to come up. So you're going to have this inverse relationship between the two. But I really like to test in the afternoon in a fasted state with both my ketones and my glucose. Okay, you guys, we're gonna keep rolling here. I did answer this question, but I want to read it again so that we can actually talk about it a little bit more and I can refer others back to this podcast as well. Courtney asked, what are the reasons for high SHBG? I have elevated SHBG and I'm on T3 only at 125 micrograms. I understand from a previous podcast of yours that T3 can further raise SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin. So how should one go about lowering it? So Ms. Courtney, yes, I posted the link to Thyroid Fixer Podcast 238, which is high SHBG steals your T3 and your testosterone. And that I kind of go into a lot more details on what pushes up SHBG, but I'd like to expand on it as well. So when you are taking those very hormones that give you life, those things that you would have to pry out of my dead cold hands, like T3 and testosterone and estradiol, when you're taking those particular hormones, those will push up sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG. And the reason why an elevated SHBG is a problem, if you picture SHBG like a little train that these hormones are jumping onto 
to be delivered to different sites in your body. And that train has a stickiness level. If it's too sticky, then here comes T3 and here comes testosterone, here comes estradiol. And they jump onto the train and they stick to it because the stickiness factor is elevated. Thus high SHBG. And that train's going around your body and it gets to the station where it wants to drop off the hormones and they're too sticky. They're stuck on the train. That is the problem with having an elevated SHBG is some of those hormones can't get to where they need to go. What we normally do is we do two different things to address this. Number one, someone might necessarily require a little bit higher dose of those hormones. So speaking personally, I have shared my labs multiple times with you all. You guys know everything about me. My SHBG is high. I am on 150 micrograms of T3. I do take testosterone injectable, 10 to 20 milligrams per week. My test level varies. It varies. I mean, if I test it in its peak, it's up to 300. I just tested it in its low point. It was down to 30, but I'm not changing my testosterone dose at all. And then my estradiol was very low. So I'm now on estrogen. Those three hormones, I just require a little bit more of, which is why I have a higher dose of T3, which is why I have a higher dose of testosterone, I mean, it's an adequate dose. It's what I like to put my ladies on anyways. And those extra hormones kind of help out because my SHBG is elevated. Now I still take my bedroom fixer, formerly known as SHBG fixer, because that's going to come in the top, right? So it's going to be kind of like a little bit of a seesaw mechanism where I'm taking the hormones that push it up. And then we bring in bedroom fixer to keep SHBG down. Now my SHBG might never get to that optimal range of 60 to 80 because I'm doing things that that's going to push it up. Right. But I have the cap on it so that it, maybe it just stays in this nice little back and forth range. Maybe it stays somewhere between, you know, 110 and 180. And I just, float in there. And I never go all the way up to 250. And of course, I'm never going to go down to 80 or 60, but I'm just going to kind of float in this range because I'm doing things to keep it low while doing things to push it up. Those things that I'm doing to push it up, you're not going to take away from me. Now, other factors that you can definitely look at in terms of what you might be doing that can change If you are doing a very, very low carb diet for a very, very long time, that's not necessarily good. So if you have very low insulin levels, then it, and you have high SHBG levels, then you might have to throw in a higher carb day once or twice a week to get out of that really super low insulin state. Also starvation diets. If you are starving yourself, if you are eating too low of a caloric intake because you are so desperate to lose weight, get your thyroid optimized first, get your hormones optimized first, stop starving yourself because all you're going to do is shut down your own metabolism anyways. You know this, you know, it's not going to work. Starvation doesn't work. It doesn't work. I know you're desperate, but it doesn't work. So all you're doing is pushing down your own metabolism. And that in turn is also going to increase your SHBG. 
low protein diets, vegans, vegetarians, you cannot get in an adequate amount of animal protein by eating vegan or vegetarian or a plant-based diet. You need that animal-based protein. Low protein diets will also push up SHBG. So there are things that you're not going to take out. And there are things that you can definitely change because there are choices to starve yourself, to eat a vegan diet, to intake too low of calories or protein. And that those are the things that you absolutely can change to make an impact on your SHBG. Okay, we're going to keep going. Let's see. Lena, is estriol heart protective or only estradiol? How much progesterone? Do you need to take to protect uterine lining if on estrogen therapy? If on estrogen and progesterone, will you bleed? Can you only take berberine short term? Okay, girl, we got to break these down, Miss Lena. Is estriol heart protective or only estradiol? You know, a lot of practitioners out there do use a biased cream, estriol and estradiol. Uh, my friend Karen Martell has an amazing, well, a couple podcasts on all about estrogen, estradiol, progesterone. She goes deep. She deep dives into them. And really, you don't necessarily need estriol. Estriol is one of the three estrogens that rise during pregnancy. I just like to use flat out estradiol with my ladies because that's really all that you do need. Now, some patients have come to me and they're already on an estriol and estradiol cream. And we just keep it there, especially if their numbers are looking pretty good. And if estriol is really, really tanked out. Now, so many different factors come into play here. And this is almost too much for a podcast, but obviously your age, whether you're menopausal, if you had a hysterectomy, all of these things can come into play where I may leave someone on an estriol cream or a biased, even compounded, not necessarily over-the-counter biased. But most of the time, most of the time, all you need is estradiol. How much progesterone you need is really dependent on you. And again, Karen has a beautiful two-part episode on progesterone that I encourage you to listen to as well. She dives into the, the difference of oral and topical. So I'll give the overview. Oral progesterone is my first go-to because number one, the oral form of progesterone gives a much more calming effect to the brain and the body. So those suffering with anxiety, insomnia, oral progesterone is just so beautiful with that. And it converts in the liver to allopregnenolone. Pregnenolone is also very neural protective. So those with dementia and Alzheimer's in their family, even Parkinson's disease, we wanna see that pregnenolone level in an optimal range. Pregnenolone, if you get that tested and we're looking at the standard lab value range, I really like that in the, the middle really kind of dead center, maybe a little bit skewed to the higher end, but not over range and not in the basement. And then if you have a family history of dementia and Alzheimer's, then it's, if you're like me, you will also take pregnenolone in addition to progesterone. So I'm getting the pregnenolone benefits 
of taking pregnenolone controlled release orally. And then I take progesterone orally at night before bed. Usually 100 to 300 milligrams is about the cap of what you need orally. Now, a lot of women are, well, no, not a lot, a handful. A handful of women do not tolerate the oral form of progesterone very well. It will actually make them more more anxious, more agitated, more weepy. Like I'm talking like the crying for days kind of thing. So in that case, we might use topical, maybe do a complete changeover if you're completely intolerant, or we might, instead of going up, up, up in the progesterone oral, we might add in some topical. So it's all about finding that balance. There is no one size fits all with dosing. That's the same as If you asked me about thyroid, there's no one size fits all with dosing of hormones. It's all about finding what works for you. Now, in terms of detecting, and this is a a previous question that I didn't even get into. How do you determine estrogen dominance? I got into such deeper talks on, on the whole CGM that I think I totally skipped over. Stacy's. Oh no, we were talking about graves and working out and muscle soreness and creatine that I forgot about her question about estrogen dominance. I'm going to tie it in here. When we're talking about estrogen dominance, we want to look at your total estrogen. So we want to test total estrogen, estradiol, estriol, estrone. Those are the three estrogens that get broken down. We look at that total estrogen. And sometimes I'll even look at estradiol. And listen, if that's through the freaking roof, if your estradiol is two, 300, then you're in an estrogen dominant state, most likely depending on your age and depending on its relationship to progesterone. So kind of tying in Stacy's question with Lena's question here, you, how much progesterone you need also depends on your own estradiol level and how much estradiol you are taking if you are using BHRT. And then that also depends on whether you're doing static dosing or rhythmic dosing. So there's so many different factors in here. Static dosing is the same dose every single day. So you would take your progesterone, you take your estradiol, that remains the same all the time. And then usually we take one week off with the progesterone so that you don't get any kind of resistance. With the rhythmic dosing, which I, again, you guys know everything about me. I just started it. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. So I'm working with a good friend of mine and she is dosing me. And I said, you know what? I'll give this a try because I honestly don't mind having my cycle. And I feel not as youthful without it. I know a lot of you ladies are like, are you crazy? I am so happy to be done having to buy tampons and having my cycle every single month and trying to work it around vacations. But I personally, there, there is a youthfulness in having your cycle and I'm just going to try it out. So I'll let you know. So the dose of estrogen and progesterone is very dependent on how your practitioner is dosing you. If you're doing rhythmic or static And then it just depends on you and your own levels and what you need. But an estrogen dominant state can be seen when progesterone is really, really in the basement. And we know that progesterone levels start to decline in your 30s, along with testosterone. Those are the first two hormones to go. Estrogen is last. Estrogen can be in in an estrogen dominant state, or you can be bottomed out as you go to perimenopause and menopause. 
So what we want to do is look at that one to 20 ratio. So where is your progesterone and where is your estradiol and, or even your total estrogens and look at that as a one to 20 ratio. So if you, I'll give you an example. If your progesterone is rolling in at a less than 0.5, which I see all the time, and your, let's just even take the estradiol because total estrogen obviously is going to be more. So let's take the estradiol. Now let's say your estradiol is coming in at a 280. You're estrogen dominant. You definitely are. Now, if your estradiol comes in at, let's say 100, because we really want estradiol above 50 for, for protection, for heart protection, for bone protection. And that kind of ties into your first question, Lena the heart protective effects of estradiol, we want that estradiol number above a 50. So let's say you're coming in at like 80 to 100 with your estradiol. And again, your progesterone is in the toilet. Am I necessarily going to try to, to decrease your estradiol? No, we're going to add in progesterone to help balance it out. Now, anytime a woman is on any kind of estrogen therapy, I like to add in DIM. I'll add in estrogen fixer because that has the dim and the broccoli seed extract just to help your body process it. Because the last thing we want, especially if you're not pooping every day, is the recirculation of your estrogens. You want to be able to process those estrogens, even if you're taking it or you're still making it, you want to be able to methylate it and process it and not recirculate it. So I will very, very often add in estrogen fixer, even when someone is not in that blatant estrogen dominant state, you know, where your estradiol is 400 and your progesterone's in the toilet, even if you're taking estradiol bioidentical bio hormone replacement, we'll still add that in to make sure that you're, you're moving through it and you're processing it. If you're on estrogen progesterone, will you bleed? I mean, Here's the thing, Lena, again, it comes back to, are you supposed to? Because on rhythmic dosing, that's my goal. If you're doing static dosing and you bleed, you might have to have a vaginal ultrasound to check your uterine lining. So work with your practitioner on that, on that question, because that is very, very specific to you and what your treatment is. Now, anytime that you start to add in hormones, I mean, even thyroid hormones, you might get a little breakthrough bleeding because your hormones are shifting. You might get two cycles in a month, especially if you are a cycling woman, your cycles might increase. They might get longer. They might get shorter. You might skip one. I mean, the body just kind of goes a little bit haywire and starts to shift whenever we're messing with hormones or messing with balancing and optimizing hormones. It's no need to panic unless you're getting full cycles. So if you are a woman on hormones and let's say you have a 12-day cycle, you have a five-day cycle, you have a seven-day cycle, and then it happens again, but you're not on rhythmic dosing. And it's kind of like, oh, well, we really should check this. Let's check your uterine lining. Let's just get a vaginal ultrasound because I don't want you bleeding when you shouldn't be, especially if you're a menopausal woman and we start you on hormones and all of a sudden you're cycling, but you're not on the rhythmic dosing. We want to kind of check that out. And then your last question, Miss Lena, is can you only take berberine short-term? No. So here's the thing. Yeah, I know other functional docs, they taking it for more than three months will wipe out your microbiome. Berberine is used as a gut healing protocol. 
we don't just use berberine for lowering insulin and balancing blood sugar. We actually use it as gut healing as well because it improves the health of the microbiome. And we are seeing some studies that something like metformin, which is kind of like the pharmaceutical stepsister of berberine, that that also has an impact on the gut. So my friend Jay Campbell shared a very interesting story that has stuck in my mind forever. And I have used this on occasion with my metformin and my berberine is him and his wife went and they were in a different country, I believe Mexico. And everybody of course was eating, eating, eating. And all the members of their vacation party got sick. They all started getting food poisoning. And so Jay and his wife went back to the room and they started downing metformin. And that absolutely stopped the, I guess, the growth of the bacteria, the food poisoning, whatever, but they didn't get violently ill like the rest of their party. So there is a gut healing benefit to things like berberine and metformin, both kind of in that similar class. So no, there's no issue with destroying your microbiome. In fact, it could improve it. The long-term use question Again, I would go back to and look at metformin. If you are a type 2 diabetic, your doctor isn't going to say, you know what, just take this diabetic medication for three months and then stop. What? That's not going to do anything. You need long-term use, especially if your A1C and your insulin's high, in order to get those down. Because I'm going to tell you, I mean, A, there's not that many studies that, if any, that I know of. I mean, I would have to dig a little bit for you but I have not seen anything that says you must stop, that you must take a break from berberine. No hard evidence on that whatsoever. And to, to top that also, I would argue, isn't high insulin and high blood sugar more detrimental than possibly taking a supplement that, oh, it has gut healing properties and antimicrobial properties and antibacterial properties to it, wouldn't I want to take that more long-term than risk the detrimental effects of high insulin and high glucose? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Serena, not sure if it's thyroid related, but I was wondering if you have any videos talking about endometriosis and any connections related to thyroid. No, I don't have anything specific for endometriosis. I mean, a lot of this can be kind of under that umbrella of hormonal issues. You know, we see more endometriosis and PCOS in the younger population, 20s, 30s, maybe early 40s. But most of the time, if you're a woman, you find out if you have endometriosis pretty much in your 20s and 30s. Now, there is a tie-in. I just haven't gone deep into it. So when we come back to the thyroid being the master gland and controlling hormones, we always will see a connection between thyroid and hormones, even thyroid and PCOS, because you have that dysregulation of the hormonal cascade with PCOS. We usually have excess androgens, low progesterone. So when we start to balance out and, and high insulin levels too, by the way, so when we start to balance out the thyroid, oftentimes PCOS will also balance out. Now we might still have to use a little bit of progesterone. We might still have to use Vitex. We might still have to use berberine for the insulin resistance, um, spirulonolactone for 
the high androgens if necessary. I try to stay way, way, way away from birth control. I don't recommend it at all because that will tank your thyroid. But there's always a connection with hormone imbalance and the thyroid. So that's my kind of umbrella answer for you, Mistrina. Can you please, this is from Amanda, can you please explain the causes of hypothyroidism aside from Hashimoto's? And can anything be done to rectify those? How do you make the distinction between someone who does have Hashimoto's and someone who does not? Fantastic, fantastic question. So first of all, if we go 95-ish percent of all hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's, even if we bump that down a little bit and go 90%, we'll give 10% to the, the population with just a tanked out thyroid. What causes that? 10%. So that can be chemotherapy, radiation, beta blockers, birth control, different medications that specifically tank your thyroid. Lithium, which is used in bipolar treatment, is a known medication to completely tank out the thyroid gland. Excessive dieting, under eating, starvation, eating disorders, large, large, large amounts of stress. Now, even with that, though, you still come back to with those large amounts of stressors, did that flip the Hashimoto's switch? So let's let's back off of the large amount of stress and let's say in that bubble that we were just in with the chemo, the radiation, the different medications, starvation, over-exercising. That alone can cause the thyroid gland to shit the bed. So it just stops producing T4 and T3. It stops working well. With Hashimoto's, we know that there's a gradual destruction because your soldiers that are part of your autoimmune system, they think that the thyroid gland is an invader. They think it's a bad guy, so they go out and attack it. So that's the differentiation. Now, here's the thing. How do you make the distinction? Obviously, by testing. So we can test TPO and TGA, but the problem is, is that often comes back as a false negative. When I was on Cynthia Thurlow's podcast, we both talked about this because we both know that we have Hashimoto's. And I'll get into the how I know this in a minute. And we both said, and she even said it first, which I, I just, I love her and commend her for saying this because I was like, yeah, that's me too. She said, listen, I've never tested positive for antibodies for my thyroid problem, but I know I have Hashimoto's. Because 95% of all hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's anyways. And I have other autoimmune conditions and so do I. So I will occasionally get a psoriatic flare of psoriasis when I agitate or irritate an area. Like if I wear my back brace, I'll get an outbreak of psoriasis. So I have other autoimmune conditions. I too have never been flat out tested, you know, flagged high for those antibodies. But what is my rule? Any antibody is an antibody against your thyroid. So when we're testing TGA and TPO antibodies, I don't care if that range goes up to 34 or 40 or a nine or whatever your standard lab value range marker is, because they vary from lab to lab. Let's just use the less than 34. So many times the marker for TPO will be less than 34 is normal. And you come in at a 20. And is there a little H or an L next to that marker? No. Is it red? No. Is your doctor going to stop and say you have Hashimoto's? No. 
but you have antibodies, you have soldiers that are going out and attacking your thyroid gland. How do we not call that Hashimoto's? How do we ignore the fact that you do have antibodies? Are we going to wait? Are we going to wait until they reach 100 and then you get flagged and then you feel like crap and you've gained an extra 20 pounds and now you're laying on your couch and you can't get up? Or are we going to look at it and address it right now? We can assume that most of you with hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's unless you can distinctly tie it back to, yeah, you know, I had an eating disorder. I starved myself. I way, way, way over-exercised. I had chemotherapy and radiation. I took beta blockers. I took birth control for 30 years. You know, if you can tie it back to something and you can honestly say, you know, I know that I totally tanked out my own thyroid gland and I don't have antibodies, none, zero. Like they're not even registering, dead nuts, zero antibodies for TPO and TGA, then okay, you might just have regular old hypothyroidism falling in that five to 10% category. But the rest of us, we can normally tie it back to this showed up, all of my symptoms showed up after I was pregnant, after a hormonal change, after perimenopause, after menopause, after my husband lost his job, after we moved, after a divorce, after I lost a loved one, I took care of a parent, I lost a child, you know, all of those we can look at and go, if that was the trigger that flipped on that Hashimoto switch to the on position, even if you don't know if you have Hashimoto's, if you can tie it back to that specific trigger, chances are it's going to be Hashimoto's. If you have other autoimmune conditions, chances are it's going to be Hashimoto's. So hopefully that answers your question as well. Okay, this kind of ties in. I'm coming back to Carrie because she has another question. And I think this is going to really nicely tie in and tie up this conversation. Carrie says, in my 20s, a specialist told me that I, I probably, quote unquote, have a form of PCOS when my labs and scans did not match all the symptoms I had. For the next two decades, I could never keep weight off and suffered so needlessly with joint pain and headaches. Working with a restorative wellness solution practitioner, I healed lifelong IBS, irritable bowel, and found my trigger foods, which caused the inflammation. I continued eating a clean paleo diet, which took away all the joint pain and the headaches and reduced my TPO by 65%. I'm going to pause right here real quick, Carrie, because basically... A clean paleo diet, the beauty of paleo, and I, I know I keep saying I'm going to write this book called Pleto, right? Polito is paleo and keto blended together, taking the best of both, best of both worlds, best of both worlds. You went gluten-free. And tying into this last description that I had about Hashimoto's and soldiers going out and beating up your thyroid, when we eat gluten, gluten is seen as a molecular mimicker, meaning it looks identical to the thyroid gland. So those little soldiers that you have go out and they go, you know what? There's another invader coming in. Looks a lot like that thyroid over there that we normally attack. We better go get this. And they go out and they attack and they end up going over to your thyroid gland and attacking that as well. The problem with autoimmune is autoimmune begets autoimmune. Where we see one, we see more than one. So when your soldiers get sick of beating up all that gluten that you're consuming and they get sick of beating up your thyroid, 
they're going to move on and they're going to move to your joints. Hello, rheumatoid arthritis. They're going to move to, God forbid, your brain and spinal cord, MS, your skin, psoriasis, your hair, alopecia. So that is why we want to keep those soldiers in their barracks. We want to use things like black human seed oil, like low-dose naltrexone, because that's going to keep those soldiers in their barracks. And we want to go gluten-free like Carrie did with her paleo diet, which is why her TPO reduced by 65%. All right, so now I can keep going. And by the way, joint pain, headaches, Carrie, all all day long, I have heard reports of that just by going gluten-free people's joint pain significantly, big time decreases. I went from a size 14 down to a six pant. This belly though, unless I'm standing six straight, sucking it in, it pushes out like I'm starting my second trimester. It drives me bonkers to come this far only to look more pregnant than before because the rest of my body is slimmer. Any suggestions? So Miss Carrie, wrapping this all up. Since you know you have Hashimoto's, one of the big things with Hashi is low betaine hydrochloric acid, HCL. And sometimes this addition alone can be a game changer for those with Hashimoto's and digestive enzymes. That helps a lot too. So when we can't really digest our food and break it down properly, And I know you've overcome IBS, but I'm also going to challenge you to add in some betaine HCL, add in some digestive enzymes. The one that I have on my store currently is Designs for Health Digestzymes. I am actually coming out with Digestive Fixer, which is taking all of the good stuff that I have found, the betaine, the ox bile, the amylase, the protease, all of the enzymes and putting it all together. Basically the best of all these digestive supplements and what I know Hashimoto patients need, I'm putting them all together. So that will be out soon. We we have to oftentimes take something in order to reduce that bloat. Now, I'm going to assume that it's bloat, Miss Carrie. So assuming that it's bloat, then you do want to look at, are you taking betaine HCL? You're taking digestive enzymes? Because when you add those in, it's like you feel like you lost 10 pounds because all that bloat just goes down. The other thing to consider is if you are on hormone replacement therapy, when you first start off, and I'm noticing this right now with the the rhythmic dosing that I'm starting with a little bit higher estrogen, I am definitely feeling a little bit more pressure in my gut, gut, a little bit more bloat going on, kind of from all sides, right? I just feel like everything is a little bit more tighter. I can't say that I look like I'm in a second trimester, but definitely more, more, more bloat kind of going on. The other factor would be kind of going back to your CGM. Are there any foods that are spiking you that maybe you need to get out? Because any food that you're sensitive to is also going to cause digestive issues. You're going to have some kind of GI reaction to that as well. So look at your CGMs and see if there's anything that you need to take out in addition to doing all the other things, doing the digestive enzymes, adding in the betaine HCL, looking at your hormones, making sure that you're not in an estrogen dominant state, which can also cause bloating and distension of the stomach. And then of course, looking at your cortisol levels, because if it is fat right there, then we want to look at what is laying down fat in your belly. Do you have that genetic predisposition in your family? That's where you store body weight. 
Do you have excess cortisol that it's laying down fat in that particular area? So just a couple of things to, no pun intended, chew on for you there, Carrie, to figure out exactly what is causing that, that distension that is bothering you. You guys, this has been so much fun. I just, I, like I said, I love these podcasts. I love answering your questions. That's what's most important to me. So if you're not yet in the Girl Fix Your Thyroid group, this is where we go live. And this is where this is being streamed. Now, of course, this will be a podcast on the Thyroid Fixer podcast. And you can always go back and re-listen to it. But if you want the, the firsthand experience of hearing all of the Thyroid Fixer podcasts live on Mondays, then definitely join the Girl Fix Your Thyroid group. And then you can post questions like this that even if we're not doing a live q and I'm still in there answering them. So you'll get all your questions answered. It's a great, fantastic community that I would love to have you a part of. All right, my dears, until next time, thank you so much for your questions and thank you for listening. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you loved it. And as always, if you would be so kind to leave a review, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, That would be absolutely amazing. I read all of them. Also, anything that you hear on this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any kind of medical condition. So we always recommend that you check with your medical provider, your doctor, your nurse practitioner before implementing anything that you hear on this podcast. And if you want to find out more about working together, you can click the link below in the show notes to book a discovery call. And there you'll be talking to a member of my team They are an extension of me. They are amazing. And you and I will talk after that once we get you all signed up and you and I get to work together. All right. I hope to see you soon. 